0: Welcome back to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. This is episode 566, where I talk with Hana Mohan about... Her journey as a SaaS founder, she bootstrapped a company called Support B, which is a ticketing system for collaborative customer support. She bootstrapped it over nine years to 45000 in MRR, and then in 2020 sold her stake to her business partner. Then started MagicBell, which is the notification inbox for web and mobile applications. Started that in 2020, went through Y Combinator winter of 2021, And they're now sending more than a million notifications every month. She raised a seed round, $1.9 million in spring about five or six months ago. And so the fun part of the conversation is Hannah and I get to compare and contrast bootstrapping and being venture backed. And in fact, we explore the, the gamut. We start talking about how this isn't binary. It isn't funded or not funded, that there are in-betweens like tiny seed or like raising an angel round without getting on the venture track. And Hana came on our radar when I believe producer Xander saw her do an AMA on Indie Hackers that was starting a new tech business as a transgender woman in March of 2020. And so she has a post on her own blog, we'll link it up in the show notes, as well as an AMA on Indie Hackers if you want to find out more about her journey. And Hana is speaking at MicroConf Europe in Croatia here in just a few weeks I believe there's still a ticket or two left. There's not very many left at this point. But if you want to be in Dubrovna, Croatia, with a small group of founders this year, it's it's smaller than usual due to COVID restrictions. But I will be there. Hannah will be there as a speaker. Laura Roeder. We have Ed Freyfogel from Open Cage. And we have Pierre DeWolf from Scraping Bee, as well as a few others that we are still recruiting. And come meet the crew. Producer Xander will be there. Tracy and Einar from Tiny Seed, who you've heard on the show many times, will all be there. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Hana Mohan. Hana Mohan, thanks so much for joining me on Startups for the Rest of Us.
1: Well, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great to be here.
0: So folks heard in the intro about your experience with Support B, and then having you know, launched Magic Bell, and oh, it was MagicBell.io. I almost said, but you got the com.
1: We bought the com because I guess that's what you do when you raise money is you buy the com domain. So,
0: was it after you raised your, your funding round?
1: Yeah, it was after we raised. Honestly, I think it's better to do it sooner than later because uh, I I think we'll be successful, and we don't want to like up the price.
0: Yeah, you you increase the price of your own domain. So you raised one point nine million dollars in the spring, which is about five or six months ago. And obviously, you know, you had a lot of experience bootstrapping. Support B over nine years to forty k a month. And so there's there's a lot to dive into in terms of your you know just the breadth of your experience doing these two things. I think I want to want to kick it off with you bootstrap support B to this amazing lifestyle business and and on this podcast that's a great thing, right? Lifestyle business is not a pejorative like maybe some venture capitalists would use it. You you built this amazing business, you sold your shares to your co-founder and then you started Magic Bell. So, you're on your this next effort, why not bootstrap Magic Bell? What made you decide to take funding?
1: Yeah, sure. Also, I want to mention that it's a great business no matter what, like, you know, I, I, lifestyle or not, I think it, it's it's a great milestone to achieve for anybody. So even now, like, you know, when you start your journey, you're always like, I think when you move forward, you realize like what a great achievement that was. So I think it's given me more appreciation now than before. I'd say um, the landscape has changed a lot, right? So the hiring is a lot more competitive. The Google ad clicks are a lot more competitive. And also, I think as you get older, uh, you just like your kind of ambition moves forward. You sort of know what it takes to run a software business. I think when I started Support B, I thought, OK, you build something and then the only work is like new features. But you realize there's so much like operational stuff to fight spam, to do security, to. So I think you just understand the cost structure a lot better that either you invest that money on your own, which I certainly didn't have access to like millions of dollars to invest or you raise some money, or you are somehow okay, kind of like facing that challenge all by yourself. So I certainly wasn't. And I wanted to build a bigger business, run it sort of like, run it better with like the right people in the team from the get go. And raising some money up front and investing just seemed like the sensible thing to do.
0: You know, I've also you and I've talked before, we talked on on Air. And I've also been on both sides of that of the coin, right of the Bootstrapped versus funded, and you know, as I always say, it's more much more of a continuum I think than people make out. Because it used to be raise venture capital, and you're on this venture capital track, or you bootstrap. And now there are all these in between options. Right there's you can raise a an angel round of a few hundred thousand dollars and never raise another round. That's actually more common than people think. You can raise from tiny seed and not have to get on the venture track. And so there's there's a, a lot of nuance to it. But that was probably the biggest takeaway. Once I was working at a company with $38 million in funding is that I could hire senior people who knew how to do their job, who had massive experience doing it instead of trying to find junior folks and training them up or just doing everything myself, which eventually can lead to burnout.
1: Yeah, I think when you are starting out, with, uh, like when I started out in my 20s, I just wanted to learn everything on my own. I wanted to write the code, I wanted to talk to customers, which I still do. But like, there was a joy in kind of figuring out everything on your own and like continuing to do that. And then I think over time, you realize that if you take entrepreneurship like a profession, then your job really is to come up with the original idea, the funding, the vision. But a lot of the execution, you're actually better off handing off to other people. Actually, more so because it matters a lot that it's executed upon well. Like, for example, as a founder, I don't have the skills to project manage. I've never managed a team of 30 people and run sprints tightly. So I'm better off actually hiring a project manager and handing it off to them. Who
0: have you hired? I'm curious. You've had five or six months uh, with this $2 million in the bank, so to speak. And what does your team look like today?
1: So it's a little bit bigger. We have a designer on board, uh, a project manager, and a backend engineer, apart from my co-founder and I. And then we have a couple of people helping us part-time. Like we have a chief of staff that's part-time helping us hire and do some of the other like things that I need help with. So we are still fairly small. I have to be honest that everybody has money these days. So I definitely used to think you raise money and then bam, you post one job and then everybody will come running to you. It's certainly not true. I have learned that the hard way now.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure bootstrapped or funded or fundstrapped or mostly bootstrapped that that it really matters to most employees. You know, I think there's there are folks who want to stay with the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000, the targets and the best buys and the general mills, you know, the real uh, blue chips, so to speak. And then I guess there's big tech companies and it's kind of everyone else. There's certain number of folks who are looking for that small team where they can have a big impact. And that landscape, you know, for people working from salaried employees has gotten much larger, you know, since COVID. And I think it's tougher than ever to hire. I was going to say for worse, for, you know, any startup trying to hire who used to be able to use remote and location independent as their big sell. That's not the case anymore. Have you found that, that to be true?
1: I think you're absolutely right. Remote used to be such a big thing and it's like lesser so now because it's almost like this basic expectation. I still think that kind of asynchronous remote is a is still a kind of a rarer thing. There are a lot of companies that would only do remote in a certain time zone or would only do hybrid. So you can tell they are not truly okay with letting people manage their own time. So I think for us, like talking about that has been helpful. And I believe that would continue to be an advantage for some more time. But I think you have to treat your employees almost like customers with like ever rising expectations. I remember when I started out and probably you started, if you ever worked, we were just happy to receive a salary. And now, even if as a remote company, you want to do events and you want to and I totally understand why I, I actually want to be pampered that way. So the bar is constantly going higher and higher, I, I think. All right. So I have some
0: questions about Magic Bell specifically. You've been funded for six months, but you went through Y Combinator before that, and you were obviously working on it long before that. These days, like, what, what marketing approaches are you finding that are really working for you today?
1: So what's working well for us is still sort of this organic content or word of mouth. I think since we only made these hires a couple of months back, I haven't been able to switch full time into growth and try a lot of channels we were trying ads and they're sort of working but this area of you know a notification inbox being the notification experience is still a bit early in the market so people aren't necessarily like searching for that exact thing so you sort of want to have like this top of the funnel awareness content where people search for push notifications or and and that's working pretty well for us uh, we obviously have to scale it up a lot more and uh, we are trying, you know, direct sales. We're trying outbound sales, which is something actually, honestly, I wish I had also tried out for Support B. don't know if that's just when you find out about it, you realize everybody's doing it, but then nobody actually wants to talk about it. It's almost like this thing that maybe it's just the secret nobody wants to let out. I don't know what your experience has been.
0: It depends on the circles, I think in the more tech you know developer communities that I'm in or in the tech conversations it usually is frowned upon, and then when I talk to sales folks and I'm talking to my sales consultants, they're like, yeah everybody, everybody knows that's you know there's just there's outbound outreach, and I mean I get you know I got Six emails yesterday, or LinkedIn outreaches from people asking if we need whatever. I, I get outreaches. It's like, does Tiny Seed need to raise venture funding? It's they're acting like we're a startup. Like they don't that we're on the wrong list. You know, but it is an interesting point. I mean, you brought up that Magic Bell is maybe a little ahead of the curve in terms of of its functionality. And while I gave a brief intro of it. Can you expound on this? You know, your H1 is the embeddable notification inbox. Improve your customers' workflow with our in-app inbox where all your product notifications live. So talk me through, you know, one to two minutes of like what it does, you know, the jobs to be done of Magic Bell.
1: Sure. And it's funny to hear that out loud because we are working on a new site. So in my mind, the messaging has already moved forward and sometimes I forget that our customers are still seeing the old messaging. And so the basic value proposition is the same, that we think adding an in-app notification inbox in your product is a great way to send workflow notifications or even announcements or billing alerts. So I think now we've figured out that once it's installed, people want to send all kinds of notifications. And so we are calling it an all-in-one inbox. We are actually building more functionality so you can send announcements like we added this new partner or we added this new feature as well as notifications like somebody added a comment on your post or you have a new friend request. So the jobs that people are using it to do are bringing to a user's attention what they need to see. So it acts as a way to notify users that are not currently online, in which case we can send them an email or a text message. But also when your users come back to your application, it's this one place where they can look and say, okay, so this is all that needs my attention. And depending on the industry, there are different use cases, like in logistics, it's uh, alerting operations team about a delivery that needs to be rerouted or a courier that needs to be reassigned. In case of a collaboration software, it's just enabling a frictionless exchange of information. So depending on the use case, it changes. And I think traditionally people have relied upon email for all of these things. So it's almost like this kitchen sink approach, unless anything happens, send an email. So really, I think what we are competing with is this trend of email. And you probably remember, right, like 10 years back, SendGrid and Mailgun were not an obvious choice. People used to send their own emails. So I feel like we're going through the same cycle that SendGrid and Mailgun went through, just like maybe 10 years later with this product.
0: Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I was talking to a founder yesterday who has, it's an SMS product for e-commerce shops. And one thing that we were chatting about was just how not real-time email is anymore. And as someone who you know, obviously built-in ESP and still, there's still a ton of value in email. There's still, there's a purpose for it, but SMS and Facebook Messenger and in-app notifications, you know, whether it's web app or whether it's a mobile app push, I mean, there's all these things that really do, they do different jobs now. And so I so I totally hear you. And I feel like this is a, a really evolving piece, even to the point of Intercom and Drift kind of lodged things. Like Intercom had to come on the scene they had the chat widget, but they were also email. And I don't know if you would need to do that today. You know, I don't know that that's a requirement to also have the email piece because I just think the job is is so different.
1: A lot of our customers don't use email, but then I, I think email is here to stay. What we want to do is over time just send as few emails as possible. So like do email deliveries, but very smartly, only if a notification hasn't been seen or maybe batch them up and then send them out in an email so it's almost like you want to really kind of lead the way in decluttering your user's inbox and you want to respect it more. So, and it's also good for your application just to not rely on it. Yeah, because it, it,
0: you want to hit them when they're thinking about it. And when they're in their email inbox, they're often thinking about other things I want to get work done. A lot of people use their their inbox as their to-do list versus when they log in to Magic Bell, they're thinking, okay, I'm in the Magic Bell mindset. Oh, here's some notifications about new updates or about something that happened in Magic Bell. It's like they're already in that context, you know? So I, th- I think there's a lot there.
1: Yeah, and then also there are these users like insurance agents, customer support agents. They're already online for like eight hours. Right now, a lot of applications, a lot of our users come to us because their users have to go back to email to check notifications and then come back again. And they can build this themselves, but it takes them like months with real time being hard and just multi-channel. And so what we're eliminating for them is like your users already are paying your attention, but you just don't have a way to leverage it. And that's what Bill offers to you. So I want to switch it up a little bit
0: and talk about something we were talking about offline right before we hit record, which was this idea of being bootstrapped versus funded. And something you said to me, I, I think is worth diving into. And it's, you said... There's often this anti-funding mindset or an anti-funding rhetoric that probably came about 15 or 20 years ago when the funding landscape was not that founder friendly. It was different. And these are my words now. In my opinion, it was Paul Graham that changed it. It was Y Combinator because before that, the docs were opaque there was an information asymmetry where investors had all the info about terms and, not, and we didn't as founders. And, and Paul Graham really changed that. Now, I know there's been arguments that Paul Graham potentially took it too far or YC has taken it too far. You don't have to comment on this having just gone through YC, but I've heard it, some investors like Jason Kalkanis say, you know, it's, it's two people in a garage and they have an expected $10 million valuation or an uncapped note or something, which is so not investor friendly that, you know, it, it cuts the other way. But all that said, the landscape today, there is no doubt is night and day different than 20 years ago you want to talk me through your thoughts on that
1: yeah absolutely and i have to be honest i actually never raised before like you said right like i always bootstrapped it so i also kind of heard that it made sense to me 10 years back right like when dhh and you know all these like smart people talked about just how vcs are evil and you know maybe there was some truth to it for sure I also hear these stories in other podcasts of like um, some of the early companies in the Bay Area selling for 70% of their equity right off the bat for like 500k or something. And that certainly doesn't happen anymore. The valuations have been rising. I think like, yeah, sure, YC is maybe partly responsible for it, but I think it would have happened sooner or later anyway, right? Like there's just so much money to be invested so I think Andreessen Horowitz does it and SoftBank does it. And so the, the the game has changed entirely and people have seen a lot of exits at 10 billion, 40 billion, 50 billion that I think there's a prediction that in 10 years, there'd be a lot more $50 billion SaaS startups Man, I agree with it. So when you look at it from that perspective, I mean, venture capital has always been kind of a lottery, right? But a smart lottery in a way. So when you think about just how much bigger the returns are, people are willing to place bigger and bigger bets. And if anything, it only benefits the founders, I think, for most part. The smartest founders anyway never raise at the highest valuation, I think. They always like raise at a good valuation with the right folks. But it's good that the average valuation is higher now. I think the other big difference is a lot of people think that you raise money and then you give up control of your company and it's not true at least in the beginning before you you had to do a price round so you raised let's say a million dollar series and you spent 60,000 on just the legal fee and you gave up a board seat now people raise like 3 million 5 million on a SAFE which is simply a promise of equity so you don't give up any control of your company you obviously have to you know be in touch with your investors and you should be but they're not running the company for you. So I also just think that there are a lot of these misconceptions about what happens after you raise money. Actually, what most people would be surprised with is most of the time, once the money's in the bank, the investors actually just move on to the next deal. Like that's their job is to primarily close deals, not to actually babysit you. They're there if you need them. So to me, it just feels like a very different landscape. It would be good for more people to kind of rethink it. Because I see a lot of people working extremely hard, having customers, having tens of thousands of dollars in revenue and just never considering raising money. I just feel like they can just make their product customers and even their life so much easier. And it's okay to do that, I think.
0: You know, there's a reason this podcast is called Startups for the Rest of Us. It's not called Bootstrapping for the Rest of Us. It's never been anti-funding. And I have, in the preface of my book back in 2010, I said I'm not anti-venture capital. I'm only anti-everyone thinking the only way to start a software company is to raise funding. There are different options. That's it. And this podcast is always focused on freedom, purpose, and relationships, And, you know, back in 2005, maybe you couldn't raise funding without giving up your freedom or control your company. Maybe. I I don't know. I wasn't trying to raise, although I did apply to, I applied to Y Combinator in 2007. I did try to raise an angel round and I just didn't know anybody. I had no network. I was an outsider, right? Like most of us are. That's why most of us bootstrap is that we're, we don't know anyone. We don't, friends and family was a joke. It's like, I don't have friends and family with money. Like I can't raise, I can't, I could raise a couple hundred bucks or something. So that started changing. And and the moment that I heard about people raising, for SaaS companies, raising a couple hundred grand from angels who weren't, wasn't on the venture track, you know, and, and that you could make your life easier that's when I started realizing, oh, there's this third option that's building and whether we call it, you know, some people call it alt VC, some people call it, I don't know, third wave funding. I'm trying to think of the other terms, but it's it's basically just funding without maybe the the expectations or the the strings attached that used to used to come with it. And that, I mean, that's tiny seed, right? I mean, that's the point. Cause I was writing angel checks out of my own personal net worth into SaaS companies under this model. And I enjoyed it. But eventually you just get overweight. You're Asset allocation is out of whack, and that was when it was like, well, why don't why don't we just raise a fund to do this? Because there are so many folks who could use this. uh, To your point, who could benefit from it and maybe have a little bit easier time growing their company? Perhaps my biggest—it's not a regret per se—but one of the things that I would have done differently, looking back, building drip is I kept toying with the idea of raising a a small round, a two hundred fifty to five hundred k one time round, just to do what you're saying, which is hire that chief of staff and and just be able to hire more senior people and have the budget. And I never did. I never pulled the trigger on it. And I kind of regret it because it made the journey much harder than it needed to be and I I could have raised it and sold 10% of the company. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't it would have been that much, and it wouldn't have made it. Di- the ultimate outcome, even if we sold for the same amount, it would have just kind of all been a wash anyways, right? It just wouldn't have, it's not like I would have given up half of the sales proceeds or something. So, I'm not saying everyone should, or that you should, or whatever, but it's like, this is, this is a viable option.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's okay to own lesser of your company if the value of your company is larger, right? I think that concept is a little bit hard to sort of understand unless you've lived through the startup life a little bit. A lot of successful bootstrap startups are are unfortunately because they cannot invest and their growth is slowed down. When they do want to exit, they only can exit at like 1x or 1.5x of their ARR. So there is actually a cost. And I think maybe that's one of the things that I didn't quite... This is probably the YC effect for me is... I'm a lot more aware of the opportunity cost now. I think once you achieve a certain lifestyle, then you start thinking about, okay, uh, I could be doing a lot with my time. And like you said, for a lot of us, th- there was no other way to enter this, you know, race or circuit. And sometimes you may actually not be like, if you may read on TechCrunch, people are raising $5 million rounds at $100 million valuation pre-revenue. And you may not be able to do that. Most of us actually still cannot. And that's fine. I think that's just the price of admission. So you do what you have to do. But like you said, it's just good to keep your mind open and sort of know when is that moment to actually switch. I, I like That's actually a hard one to know, especially if you're surrounded by people who are almost treating it bootstrapping almost like I'm reluctant to say it, but almost like a religion, I would say.
0: And then it's on the other side too, right? I used to, um, when we were bootstrapped, I would go to the Bay Area and I would go to an event because we we're in Fresno, California. So it's like a three hour drive to San Francisco. And I would go to an event, and everyone would be like, Oh, what company are you doing? Uh, you know, Drip, it's an email market, email service provider. Oh, how much have you raised? And I was like, we haven't raised any, but that's the wrong question. We're doing a million in ARR or something. Like how much are you doing in revenue? You know, I, we, had, we were growing faster and had more revenue than any of these companies that I would talk to at these events who had raised more than we had in revenue. Like it was just this crazy, th- there's that side of it too, right? Is it's like, let's get away from, it's too far left and too far right. You know, it's like, let's come back and be, be centrist and think about what is the best option at the, at the stage that I'm at based on the kind of business that I want to build, because I've had amazing, you know, I'll say little businesses that did 20 or 30 grand a month. It was pretty much all net profit. That was life-changing for me. And that was great. And I shouldn't have raised funding for that because it, it just was a cool little, you know, bootstrap business that that provided an amazing lifestyle.
1: I think sometimes you just want to, you want to take your time and that's totally okay. I think what like you and I are saying is, if you are actually working at it very ambitiously and slogging at it, then why not add some firepower?
0: To your point earlier, as long as you can find the right people, it's not about maximizing valuation. That's a mistake. That's a noob mistake, right? It's about finding people who, meaning investors, who are going to come alongside you and advise you and give you the best counsel they can, and they're not out for themselves, and they don't have terms that could potentially screw you down the line. Because they are kind. while they're not co-founders and that they are not working in the business day to day, they do, you know, whether they own equity or a promise of future equity, they essentially are shareholders of your business. And so you do want to be careful with that.
1: I mean, they can definitely make your life miserable if they wanted to. Let's put it this way. And I think what you want to find out is you want to like, like, I'm sure that's how you invest is like, if you invest probably once in somebody, you're, you're hoping that that relationship will last forever and you'll probably invest in their company subsequently too. So you really want to find such folks, I think.
0: I wanted to get into your chief of staff role, because this is a role that came on my radar well, it was about five years ago now where there was a venture back startup I, and I heard they had a chief of staff and the CEO founder actually rolled his eyes. He was, he was a little embarrassed and sheepish when he says, oh, I have a chief of staff. I feel so, you know, because he was just this humble founder who felt like it was, it was overkill. But I started then hearing that kind of the chief of staff is the new COO. And what used to happen for folks who don't know is 10, 15, 20 years ago, you would get investment. And then the CEO was usually a 23-year-old kid out of Harvard or Stanford. And then you would bring in adult supervision as the COO. And then the, you know, the founder would either get, well, originally the founder would then get fired as COO, but then with Zuckerberg and Facebook, he, kept, he retained rights. And then he brought in, well, it was Sheryl Sandberg, I think, right? Who was the COO there. And that became the new pattern is there's the COO who know, really knows how to operate a business and the founder continues to do what founders do. These days, I'm seeing a pattern of chief of staff at a startup instead of a COO that the COO hires pushed way down the line, which it it should be. You should never hire a a C-level person in the first, you know, in the first, you need to get to a lot of millions, I'll put in error, before someone has a C in front of their title, unless they're a founder, in my opinion. So this chief of staff role, you know, Jordan Gall of Cart Hook has a chief of staff. He's talked about, there's several folks I know who are doing this and you do it early and usually you need funding whether you're self-funding or raise funding because it's it's an expensive hire that doesn't push revenue right it's this person's not a developer not building product not doing sales so you've hired a chief of staff which i'm envious of because i want that person who is doing all the things that i don't want to do and that that's my understanding of the role but you actually have one can you talk us through a why you decided to do that and b what this person does for you
1: sure and i think The title has come to mean so many different things now, right? So like sometimes it's like the assistant to the CEO or sometimes it's the chief of staff or I think in our case, like I already kind of hinted at, I'm good at kind of figuring out what to do, but I'm really terrible at sometimes running processes. So hiring is a big example of that. I think I kind of hiring today is almost like selling, right? So you actually pretty much have to run an outbound process and source people and then nurture them it's it's insane and so for me the primary reason was to bring in somebody who can actually like really help me with these processes and hiring being the first one but then let's say if you're working on we are working on a SOC to compliance like that's a pretty tight process to run so in my case it's like not necessarily also jobs that i don't want to do but even if i wanted to do i would be terrible at them i'm good at giving directions but I'm actually not good at running the processes. And that's what this woman that I hired, she helps me uh, with. And uh, she's not actually really senior, but she's extremely smart. She's very process oriented. So I don't think it has, like at least if you're using somebody for this sort of like help, I don't think they need to, they don't need to be super experienced. Probably if they are, it's better, but it's almost like you would hire somebody who probably would go on to become a future founder themselves. Got it. And so
0: what type of background would you look for, or is the background important?
1: Actually, in this case, it was uh, one of the candidates that we interviewed for our founding product manager role. So she has a product management background. And that I think gives you a lot of these skill sets because some of like running hiring or getting you SOC compliant or figuring out any, like she improved our onboarding process for new hires, like even after people join like a lot. There's there's actually like project management, you have to get multiple pieces together. So I think that's worked well for us in general. Like I think as long as somebody has, uh, you know, sort of attention to details, they can communicate well and they are okay being with a lot of chaos, I would say. Because I think one of the things that can be challenging sometimes is that people don't realize just how clumsy early days in the startup life are right? Like you have a vague sense about everything, but you actually don't know anything for sure. And and that's a big difference, right? Like I had built startups, but to run hiring like this or to sort of get socked to compliance in the first few months, these are the things that you probably only do when you're raising money and you're sort of building with a certain velocity. So you really have to figure all that out. So if you are okay with a little bit of that chaos and they are willing to put in the time, I think that should work. It's worked really well for us.
0: You know, as founders, we are We are up for the chaos. That is building an early stage startup. Most employees are not and they want more stability. And so that it's a good point. It's an interesting point to think about that for this hire. So a friend of mine was advising a a separate friend that I didn't know about how to potentially get a job as a chief of staff at a startup. And I was like, you know, the folks I've seen do it either came up as executive assistants or they came up through like operations, like office manager or, you know, someone who because this person is a Is a utility player where, you know, in in baseball, there are folks who only play first base, right? And they're outfielders. And, And then there's folk and they're pitchers. And then there are folks who are utility players, and they can just play anywhere on the field. And they're, they're probably not as good at any individual role. But the fact that they can play six, seven positions is, is truly unique. And that's how I think about founders. Often, And that's how I think about a chief of staff is that it's like a founder shadow, like you said, assistant to the founder, where it's like, you're higher level than an executive assistant, you're not just doing admin tasks, you're doing things that require like business knowledge. And I don't know, there, there's an added layer there. I don't see why it wouldn't continue to, to be a thing.
1: Yeah, and I think the challenge is what you mentioned earlier is that it's not a revenue role. So sometimes it's a little bit hard to justify in a pre product market fit startup. Also coupled with the fact that there is this sort of idea that as a founder, you must be constantly under the water and barely able to like surface up and breathe. So I honestly don't believe in that. I feel like I don't really want to run tired all the time. So I think depending on that, the role makes a lot of sense. You know, sometimes I feel it's a good role for people who, you know, how there is this community of people who like structure all their research really well. Because there are things that you don't often think of as work, like let's say you want to run sales and now you want to try out three different sales software. That's actually a lot of work and you can spend your time doing it as a founder or if you can find somebody on whose research you can rely, you can let them run that process. So there's actually a lot of like these crucial decisions you are making that arguably aren't that important. And so you really want to find somebody whose kind of research skills you trust a bit as well, I think.
0: Hannah Mohan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You are Una Mas Hana, H-A-N-A, on Twitter. And of course, magicbell.com if folks want to see what you're working on. Thanks again for joining me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining me again this week. I hope these episodes continue to provide you with strategies, tactics, motivations, just new ideas, new experiences that help push your business forward in the coming week. And I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.